All right. Let's talk about trials and suffering. Oh, my goodness. Never mind whether or not you're ever going to counsel anyone or not. If you're alive, you have a pulse, and you're living in this world, you're going to have to have some understanding for yourself as you live life to work your way through. But what about? What about? And there can be great confusion because our human nature so desperately wants to avoid trials, first of all, and secondly, find some way, if possible, to just eliminate them. Isn't there some ways? They're not some formula or something. The problem is other books that are out there will talk that way as if there is. And many times the Bible teaching this on the television, sadly. I don't know why it is. The people who have enough money to be on TV are some of the worst. I don't know why that works that way. The people you should listen to the least or have the most exposure. I'm not sure why. But when you read God's word, so often that I just find... There is no way that person could have come up with what they're saying right now or the book that they just wrote right now if they were truly reading all of God's word. It's like you don't. It doesn't say that. But at the risk of sounding irreverent, I want to ask some hard questions. Do you ever, not necessarily out loud in your small group or with a good friend, but it's, it's ringing in your head. Do you ever question God's goodness? His wisdom, his faithfulness, his love. How about this? His timing. His timing. Inside have you ever thought, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Calamity and suffering are all around us in our world. And it seems that Christians, and I'm speaking broadly now, just the broad camp of Christianity, which, whew, There's a lot of theology there, and there's a lot of different denominational labels, but I'm just speaking in general, that Christianity in general tends to to swing in two different directions regarding trials and suffering and calamity and tragedy especially. There'll be those that I I shudder when I hear them say there's an earthquake somewhere or, or a hurricane or tsunami like what we saw, you know, that December in Southeast Asia, something catastrophic. And and often the media, at least, will still seek out some Christian. I usually find myself thinking, where did you find them? They don't represent me, but nonetheless. And it can either be someone who's way on the right, and they're talking like this, as if they know exactly why God did it. And it usually has this kind of sound. This is what I heard with the Haiti incident. Oh, Haiti made a pact with the devil so many years ago, and they're all into witchcraft, and God is judging them for that. I don't know if you heard any of that. I did. It was being noised abroad. Folks, listen. The scripture clearly teaches we shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Haiti is no more wicked or aligned with Satan than America. America may not be into voodoo and witchcraft. Is America idolatrous? Is America prideful? Has America thumbed her nose at God? It's not, oh, Haiti made a pact with the devil and they're into voodoo and witchcraft and so look at that. And here's what we know. Luke chapter 13, you remember that passage? In Luke chapter 13, Jesus is preaching and someone calls out and and brings up some calamity that had just happened. The tower that fell in Salome and killed some people. And Jesus says this. It's interesting. 
do you think that they were worse sinners than others? I tell you, what's the answer? No. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus puts it out there and says, whenever you see a calamity, do not draw the conclusion, those people are worse sinners than us. No, 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 no. But the other place that you see Christians swing sometimes is to the opposite end. We know exactly why it happened. God is judging these people. Then the other way to swing that grieves me equally is they'll say something like this. We don't know exactly why this happened. So far, so good. That's actually a really good answer. I hope, I hope you know that. You don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to come rushing in with some complex theology. It's very helpful to say because at the end of the day, after we look at everything we're going to look at in this hour, we don't fully know all we wish we knew. But then they say this. We're not sure altogether why, but one thing we know is God had nothing to do with this. Ah! That's not biblical either. Now, I think I know what's going on, right? If we allow God to in any way have something to do with this, right? He's going to look what? Bad. So it's almost like they're a campaign manager out there, you know, Putting out brush fires and helping people assure them, hey, he had nothing. Don't associate this calamity with God. Don't draw conclusions about him based on this. He had nothing to do with this. Listen, folks. If God had nothing to do with it, and it happened, and it was on a grand scale, and lives were lost, there is somebody more powerful than God. The Bible doesn't teach that the answer is God had nothing. That's what you heard. I'm going to date myself now, but how many of you remember Keith Green? So when God got a hold of my life and I threw out my ACDC albums and, and, I, and I went, Christian, there were not a lot of options. This is how old I am. I kid you not. There was Evie and I thought, oh, please no. Tell me there's more options than Evie. And so there's Evie with her little sweet blonde hair and there was Keith Green. Uh, uh, finally, there was Petra. Yes. Oh. But Petra wasn't out yet. And I went Keith Green. First album I bought, he's got a lamb around his neck. Anybody have that? He's got a, he's got a lamb around his neck. And then I bought, uh, it was, uh, so you want to you wanna go back to Egypt? Oh, my goodness. He had a passion, a heart for God. His songs were just convicting and passionate and he was actually good he was musically good and his lyrics were good and he cared about more than music it's like what what's not to like and he dies in a little small plane crash with a friend just taking them up for fun i think with two of his kids at least one leaving melody his wife great with child and another child these are the things where we say god that makes no sense he was he was one of the few you know, Christian singers that was really not just doing that entertainment thing, but saw it as a ministry. Why would he die? And I remember reading numerous articles where Christians were saying, and they meant well, trying to comfort Melody, one thing we know, God had nothing to do with that. Let's find out what the Bible says. To the degree that we can know. There's some things we can know. We can frame this up. What does the Bible teach? 
Are we over here? Do we know exactly why it happened? Are we over here where God had nothing to do with it? What's the Bible teach? Well, let's look at some unbiblical perspectives first concerning the origin of trials and suffering. Sometimes it's good to just push off the table what's wrong. And then we've got space cleared out for saying, now. Okay, so let's, let's clear off some of the things that sometimes are rumbling around that it's, that's not, not a biblical perspective. It's just always my fault. This is just kind of the Eeyore, whoa, this is my lot in life. And if you work with someone like that or live with them, oh, heaven help us. It's always other people's fault. This is much more popular today because this will get you on a talk show in the afternoon. So the whole victim mentality is very hot and it lines up with psychology, right? I can't tell you how many... The older I get and the longer I do ministry, what I've seen more and more is adult children. I mean like they're 43 years old going off on their parents. Their poor parents who are now in their 70s and just blessing them out. You ruined my... I'm not talking about parents where there was alcohol involved and sexual abuse. Just normal parents who were not perfect, right? But just normal. And they've been... I see it over and over again. Where have they been that now they go off on their parents like this? In counseling. In some kind of secular counseling, and they cut off their parents, and you can't see the grandkids, and you ruined my life, and da 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 It's like, oh my, it's always somebody else's. I, I've got a good friend right now, a really good friend, and I watched him. He's like a decade ahead of me. I watched him raise his two kids. Perfect? No. But I was like, oh God, help me to be just half the dad that he is, do half of the cool things he's doing. Share the gospel that well and creatively the way he's doing it. Half. And his daughter, who's in her 40s and a hairdresser on the West Coast, she calls them on a regular basis to just bless them out and say, you ruined my life because you only gave me one option, Christianity. You didn't even tell me of other options. And my life has been ruined, ruined, ruined because of you. She's been in counseling now for several years. And that's the fruits of it. All she can do now is go off on them and, at the same time, need help. She needs money, and yet she tells them how terrible they are. Mm. It's no one's fault. That's the bumper sticker. Just, you know, stuff happens. It's not always said that nicely. Just stuff happens. There's nobody at the helm. There's nobody in control. We live in a world where anything could happen. Deal with it. It is what it is. If there is a God, he's not a God on his throne. He's not holding this all together. So it's nobody's fault. That's really, folks, if you think about it, that's the essence of atheism, right? Never mind that we've got a new atheism with people like Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and some others trying to put a happy spin on it. See, old atheism at least was honest. With Sartre and Nietzsche and some of them, God is dead. They were honest And they would tell you the horrible conclusion of this. If this is true, that there's no God and you're nothing more than an animal and there's no afterlife, most of them killed themselves or went insane. Thank you for being consistent. Now, we've got a new atheism that believes the same things but keeps trying to convince us. But you can still live a meaningful life. There's still a reason to treat people well. Why? Why? Because listen to what Rich... Now, Richard has gotten better about trying to make this sound a little happier. But here's what he wrote. 
He said, in a universe of blind physical genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reasoning to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there's at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. Oh, that'll get you out of bed, won't it? Here we go. I want to live for that. And then we wonder why young people are kicking open the side door of a, of a theater and gunning down innocent people who are just sitting there. And we wonder why young people with the rate of suicide and the sense of a purposelessness are struggling. It's because of these kind of philosophies. Listen to me. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have, what you believe and what you think and what you say and what you embrace determines how you live. You cannot get around it. And this leads to despair. Despair. There is an incredibly popular book that's been around for a long time now, written by Rabbi Harold Kushner, titled When Bad Things Happen to Good People, which is actually a bad title. I understand there's nobody good according to Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, but I understand what he's saying. So it's fair enough that he's talking about those cases where this is not an axe murderer, this is not a rapist, this is, from all intents and purposes, as we would think, this is a good person. Why would something like cancer or the death of their child happen to them? And I also always want to keep in mind, often when people write things, there are people who write from the ivory tower, but there are people who write out of heartache and struggle. He wrote this as he had a son. I can't remember the complicated name for it, but it was a condition where you age rapidly, very rapidly. You're seven and you look like you're 27. You're, you're, you're 18 and you look like you're 60. You're 22, you look like you're 87 and you die. That's what he lived through. And so at least he had a concept of God because he was a Jew, he's a rabbi. Doesn't have Jesus, doesn't have the gospel, but he's got God. And he wrestled with this. What about bad things that happen to good people like me? Problem? And, and it, it has sold millions, 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 and still does. It's still, if you, if you Google it on Amazon, it's still a bestseller. The problem is, is what he does to come up with his answer is he uses human logic and he says this. I can save you the price of the book. I don't want you to buy this book. It's not biblical. It's not going to help you. He says either. He pits some of God's attributes against each other. He says either God is all-powerful. He can do all things. And he's not good. Because if he was, he would use that power to stop these things. Or God is good. He's good. But he's not all-powerful. And so he can't stop some things. And he lands here. God is good. But he can't stop some things. He feels bad for you. He cries for you. He hurts for you. But he can't stop. Now, I hope this doesn't sound bad, but I find myself saying, I have a mother for that. Right? That's what mamas are great for. They always feel bad for you. They don't have power. But you know, if I call my mom and I tell her anything that sounds hard, she takes my side. 
I have to be careful, right? I mean, what? She's, she's good. She just has no power. But if you just want a, a phone call with someone saying, oh, honey, yeah. That's, that's what mamas are for. I want a God who's not just a bigger version of my mother. Right? That's what he's left us with. He's good. He cares. He feels bad for you. He just doesn't have the power to stop it. Or he's left us with a, a megalomaniac over here. He's got all this power, but he's not even good enough to use it to stop. Always watch out when you find people pitting attributes of God against each other. Now, the reason is what he's doing is he's using human logic. Did you hear it? Either God is all-powerful or, and not good because it... Now, here's where he makes a mistake, but it's human logic. Because if he was good, he would use that power to stop it. That's you concluding your own human logic, what you would do with this power. And therefore, since he didn't, he can't be good. He lands here. But Kushner's... It, it was written in 1981... And I pulled some of the comments off the Amazon website. There's a reader that says, I have an eight-year-old granddaughter with a brain tumor, and the book was suggested. As a 55-year-old, I thought my concept of God was fairly stable. The logic used by Mr. Kushner is good, but the concept that God can't is against every theory I've ever been taught. Well, good. You were in some good churches. You've been reading your Bible. It should be. But to see God as loving, one must accept the theory. Wrong. Another reader said, this book is by far the most inspiring book I've ever read. You need to read more. <laughs> I've tried. Now, now listen to this. this. This captures what so many people are actually doing. I have tried religion after religion and none of them seem to satisfy my beliefs. What is going on? I already have a set of beliefs. I have created my own religion and my own notion of how the universe should work. And I'm shopping for a religion that matches that. Instead of in a search for truth. What is truth? Doesn't matter what I think, what I feel. I want to know truth. I want to know truth. And I want to submit to it when I find it. Even if it doesn't line up with what I would have thought. I've tried religion after religion. And I haven't found one that satisfies my beliefs. This book takes an educated look at human life and death and makes sense of it, unlike the churches. This book made me understand God's involvement in our lives in a whole new way, as in not, that makes sense to me. That also, alarm bells should go off. Don't hear me saying, every day as you read your Bible, it should make no sense. And that's a good sign that it's God's word. But do hear me saying... If your theology, from start to finish, every part of it makes perfect sense to you, it's exactly what you would have thought even before you read the Bible, chances are you're not really reading your Bible. Does that make sense? He says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are just like your thoughts. Are you thinking what I'm thinking, Pinky? Yeah. Yeah. No. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. There's going to be times where as you're reading God's word, you're like, whoa, I would not have thought of that. I would not have done it that 
way. And it's indicative. Here's one of the biggest indicators to me that this is God's inspired word. Because it offends me at many points and it's not what I would have thought. Right? If a group of men and women had concocted a book called the Bible that they wanted to put together and fool people, it would resonate much more with us at so many points. It's like, that's exactly the fact that in so many places you're like, what? Indicates it's beyond us. It's outside of us. Someone thinking very differently than us. I like this book very much. The book is easy to read and to follow along. By reading the book, it helped me to get through the death of a close relative. If I found a weakness in the book, it is that things happen randomly. Yeah, bit of a weakness. Oh, what a scary world. And that's your answer. Some stuff just happens. What's going to happen next? Right? Now, don't hear me saying the Bible tells us what's going to happen next. But here's a huge comfort. Whatever happens next in Brad Bigney's life came through his father's hands first. There's not anything random. There's nothing random in this universe. There's not one maverick, random molecule loose in the universe. Our God is sovereign. Absolutely sovereign. For all the people who were unsatisfied with the lack of an actual answer to the question in the title, and for all the people who were frustrated with the chance and lack of control on behalf of God in this book, I say learn to live with it. Chaos theory, quantum physics, and God all have a lot in common. Life happens, and we classify it after the fact. Rabbi Kushner says, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes even he can't bring that about. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming they're innocent victims. Not what the Bible teaches. He says, can you accept the idea that some things happen for no reason and that there is randomness in the universe? No, I can't. And I don't have to because I'm reading another book that says that is not the case. So, now, unbiblical perspectives off the table... Well, there's one more. God is not in it at all. God's just not in it at all. This, sadly, is where many of our forefathers were. If you get all excited about our original American forefathers, I'm not saying they didn't believe in God. A lot of them were deists, my friends. It wasn't personal relationship with Jesus kind of Christianity. It was deism. There is a God. He created this. He wound it up, and like a clockmaker, he put it in place, and he stepped back, and he's not into the details. That's deism. God's not in it at all. Now, what are some of the biblical perspectives? Well, ultimately, all suffering and trials are a result of Adam's fall. This all stems from, just like I showed you Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, all sinned, and death spread to all men. Also, listen, when Adam sinned and, and sin entered into this world, so did suffering, brokenness. It's all a result of Adam's fall from Genesis Three, God is always the remote cause. Now, I'm using that word remote not to indicate coldness and detachedness. He's a personal God. I'm using it to indicate no matter who does what they do to you, they may be the agent that does it. God is still ultimately, ultimately behind that. Ultimately. No one can do anything to you, against you, for you apart from the sovereign purposes and decrees 
of God. Now, I know that might be hard for you to stomach if there's something really hard that's happened to you from someone, but if you'll stay with it long enough, folks, that is more encouraging than saying God had nothing to do with that. God still has purposes and delights in redeeming even the most tragic things. This can set you free when you don't have to take a label and say, oh, I am, I am second class forever. I'm damaged goods forever. And that whole sense of God never wanted this to happen, but now what are we going to do? Can I tell you why he would let something like that happen? No, I can't. I can't. But I think it's still a comfort when you can say, this did not just randomly come into your life and God is saying, oh, no, 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 no. I never meant for that to happen. Now what am I going to do? God never has that moment. And here's what is beyond our comprehension. He's still never the author of sin. So the people who sin against you are culpable and liable and they are the agents and they're responsible and yet God is sovereign but he holds them responsible. If you say, Brad, where's the best way to see this? I'm telling you what, if you'll read your Bible, how much of it? All of it. The Old Testament shows this over and over. The more I read it, and I try to read through every year, it's like when you go through places like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you'll see where he says, I just love it. I circle in hot pink all the references when God talks to a world ruler or a wicked nation and says, I'm about to send you and use you to do this to so-and-so or a nation. And it's bad stuff. And then a couple chapters later, this is where I just came through the other week, it says you were the, he's talking to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, and he says you were the hammer that I used, and now I'm going to crush you and shatter you. Everything about the Old Testament is God is ultimately in control. One of my favorite ways to note this is even when he talks about wicked rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, Good guy, bad guy. Terrible. No fish logo on his chariot. Not playing Christian music. ACDC before there was ACDC. Terrible man. And God, when he talks about Nebuchadnezzar, says, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. It's all through the book of Jeremiah. I've got him highlighted in orange. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. What? See what's being indicated? Nebuchadnezzar was making free choices. God did not make him. He's not a robot. It's not fatalism. Nebuchadnezzar does what Nebuchadnezzar does, and God says, and as he does it, he's responsible for the sinful piece of it, but he's still my servant, and I'm ultimately in control. You say, how can both be true? Because the Bible teaches both true. Instead of saying, but, 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 but both can't be true. That's where you have to come to the end of your own logic and recognize, hey, if God is infinite and you're finite, there's going to be some things that you say, with the mind that I have, I cannot reconcile those things. The danger that you will be tempted to go into is to say, therefore, it can't be true. Don't do that. Go with what the Bible teaches, not what you can rationally, logically settle into. He's never the author of sin. He's sovereign, so everything is planned by him. He's absolutely sovereign, so everything is planned by him. This is a huge comfort. For me, there's a couple of awakenings in my life. At seven years old, I came to faith in Christ. Truly, I do believe. and was saved. In 1986, 
summer of 1986, June of 1986, sitting in the front row at Three Rivers Baptist Church with a full head of hair parted in the middle. As the youth and music guy on staff, our pastor began to preach and teach about the sovereignty of God. I was 23 years old, and I was like, oh my goodness. I've never heard this. I mean, sovereign, sovereign over every single thing. And he's handing out books on a book table by R.C. Sproul and A.W. Pink and others. And I'm like, okay, fine. I like to read. I'll read them. But what I want to know is, does the Bible actually teach that? This Bible that I have, which is why I don't want to lose it. I've had it 33 years. I took this Bible and I went all the way through it. And I said, I want to know if the Bible teaches that. And oh my goodness, guess what? The Bible teaches that. And it changed my life. It was a, I didn't get saved, but oh my goodness, it was a new day beginning to live and understand God is absolutely sovereign over everything. You say, where do you see that, Brad, in the scriptures? Let me just run through some. There's just some. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Remember the former days of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my good pleasure. Does that sound like he's saying... If the Republicans get elected, if the Democrats get in, if, if, if I am waiting to see what people do to determine what I can actually accomplish. Nowhere does the Bible talk that way. My counsel will stand and I will do all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I've spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I hope to do it. We'll see how it goes. No! I will also do it. God is on plan A today. He hasn't changed. He hasn't had to shift, adjust. When we make plans, we have to make adjustments along the way because we do not fully know. We cannot anticipate what's going to happen. God never adjusts His plans. Two great resources beyond this right here. Read this, but if you have any extra time, oh my goodness, Jerry Pridge's book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Gold. I've read it like three or four times. Vicky's read it like three times. It's fantastic. Again, it is born out of pain. Jerry Bridges was going through a horrible trial, and he did a 10. He's a navigator. I love navigators for this. They love the Bible. They memorize gobs of verses and they like to study it and break it down and say, what does the Bible say? He did a 10-year study on the sovereignty of God, all the verses, and wrote that book. There's a chapter on the sovereignty of God over weather, the sovereignty of God over government and politics. That'd be a good chapter today. The sovereignty of God over how you look, your ears stick out, your legs are skinny, whatever it is. Oh, man, it is fantastic. Now... It's probably 275 or 300 pages. So I don't give out books like that in counseling. Please know, you should read those kind of books and be saturated in it. I am grateful that there's little short booklets. So there's a little booklet that's boiled down. It's like 27 pages. You can trust God. A little booklet for trialettes, for Christianettes. No, it's actually helpful because it's short. 
And hopefully it'll whet their appetite to say, okay, well, if I want more, I'll read the book. But those two resources can be a great start. Daniel 4.35. Woo! For his dominion is everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. I love this. No one, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here's what I really like. Trick question. Who's talking? Nope. I wouldn't ask it if it was Daniel. It's not. And it's not God. Guess who's talking? Nebuchadnezzar. That's what Neb said. After he'd eaten grass like an ox for seven years. That'll change your perspective. I love it. You read, you read those chapters in Daniel and you'll see he was walking on his palace rooftop and he said, is this, he's looking out, is this not great Babylon that I have made by my power and my hand? And God said, that's about enough out of you. If you read it, it says he, he was driven from the palace and he, he lived like an ox for seven years eating grass with his hair growing long and his fingernails. And then it says, oh yes, when he came to his senses, he said this. He's got better theology than some Christians. You understand, God is absolutely sovereign. Job 42.2. And here's a man that suffered and didn't get answers to his suffering. Suffering in ways that made no sense to him. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. There's not something God wants to do in your life but can't do because some human being or Satan is keeping it from, nope. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. You say, what about bad stuff, Brad? I can go with that regarding good stuff, even bad stuff. This includes both calamity and Blessing. Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. We're good at that. Nobody sends me an email or makes an appointment says, Oh my goodness, Brad, I need your help. Hair grew back on my head. I lost 15 pounds. All my kids scored and got in the schools I want. But I'm not joyful. Help me. Help me. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Got it. Look at the next. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has, and what is the word? Does it say allowed? Not even allowed. It's not that weak. It's stronger than that. Has appointed. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. He's sovereign. He's in control. He has a plan. Lamentations 337-38. Who is he who speaks? And it comes to pass when the Lord is not... These are rhetorical questions, by the way. When the Lord is not commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Yes, it is. Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Amos 3, 6. If there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? Rhetorical question. It's yes, ultimately... Ultimately, yes, yes, which is a comfort. You don't want the answer to be God had nothing to do with that. So what are some biblical purposes in trials and suffering? If God is sovereign 
and is ultimately behind all of this, then the question's a fair question. How in the world could this be for any good in my life? How, how is anything good being accomplished through anything other than happy, easy times? Because wouldn't we have it that way if we could? We, in our mind, we're like, if he was really good, he would just make my life good. I mean, Christians shouldn't get cancer. Christians shouldn't lose their jobs. Christians shouldn't have babies that die. Makes sense to me. That's not how he operates. So what is going on? What are some of the purposes? Number one, always for God's glory, ultimately. It's ultimately always for God's glory. Like John 9 is a perfect example of what we still fall into. John 9 captures the same theology that is very much alive and well today. The disciples are walking with Jesus. They see a man born blind. He's an adult now. And they say, Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? somebody's a big sinner, a worse sinner than others, because that's why he's born blind. That's still how we think sometimes. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Why did we get a child like this? Why did this? It has to be somehow tied. And Jesus says, neither. But this was for the glory of God. Now, in that instance, Jesus healed him. But can God get glory through anything other than healing? Oh, yes, he can. It's hard. We would prefer the healing. But as he gives you sustaining grace through the trial, because you say, well, well, there he healed the blind man. Any examples of where he doesn't heal a godly man or woman? Absolutely. We're going to get to it in a minute. The Apostle Paul, he cries out in 2 Corinthians 12 about something that really, really he found difficult. It's always for our eternal good. So you don't need to think... Great, God gets the glory and we get pummeled. Yay, God. No, no. It's always for God's glory and our good. Both, both, both. Romans 8, 28 and 29 teaches us this. And we know that God causes. Notice the strength there. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Does it say all things are good? So be careful. Rape is not good. Sexual abuse is not good. So many things are not good. What the Bible teaches is that God can take even things that are not good, that that person who did it is responsible for doing it and will answer to God for it, and can cause it to work together for good. And then you say, well, what is good? See, I'm a fan of saying don't ever memorize verse 28 without 29. Because 29 defines good for you. 29 tells you what's good. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let me ask you, just to, you don't have to raise your hand, just a quick little survey. When have you grown the most spiritually and become more like Jesus? Easy times or hard times? Now, don't hear me saying hard times automatically equal spiritual growth. You can get bitter. If you don't turn to God's grace and have other believers encouraging you and you hold on to God's word and you renew your mind. But I don't usually hear people say, oh, Pastor Brad, the year that I got the job I wanted and da, 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 I grew so much. I hear them say, as I went through that divorce, that, that's, the, that's the most awful thing I've ever experienced. But then next I'll hear them say either they got saved or they really began to grow. As I walked through those years with breast cancer or prostate cancer or my child, this, that, 
we grew. It's often in the hard times that we become more like Christ. It's always for our good. God may choose to set aside our temporary happiness to work a more grand work. His goal is not our happiness. It's our holiness. Now let me, but let me add something, hasten to add something hopeful to you. If you pursue holiness, you almost always find happiness along the way. When you pursue happiness alone, you almost never get it. And you also don't become more like Christ or holy. God may choose to set aside our temporary happiness to work at more grand work. Here's a phrase that I've tried to teach our church family. I've been here 21 years now. Lots of them could say this. God limits, orders, and controls all things for his glory and our good. That, I believe, captures a summary of the sovereignty of God in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. He limits, orders, and controls all things. He's not the author of sin, but he limits, orders, and controls all things for his glory and our good. Here's the Apostle Paul. Here's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 crying out to God and saying, we don't know what it is. And you know what? Commentators go nuts trying to guess what it is and I'm glad that we don't know. And I don't think God intended us to know. What is his thorn in the flesh? Because those that have it would say, yeah, same thing as Apostle Paul (laughs) right here, me. Yeah. And those that didn't would say, Well, that's not what I have, so that whole verse doesn't even apply to me. I think there's a reason God has communicated this in a way it's not clear, so that all of us can find help there, whatever it was. I'm telling you what, the Apostle Paul thought, I could live life to the glory of God better without it. And don't be be fooled by the word thorn, and think, well, gee, Paul, buck up, man, thorn. If you look at it in the Greek, the word is stake. It was a stake. It was something he was constantly aware of that was very limiting and painful. And he cried out to the Lord three times, begged the God to remove it. And God didn't say, here's the theology you can find on TV or the best-selling books in the Family Christian Bookstore. Oh, Paul, just say it harder. Just believe it more. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. You're not having enough faith. Go ahead and believe that it's done before it's done. Whoo! No. Paul did not lack faith, folks. Don't hear me saying there's not a place to have faith. God's word calls us to have faith. But there's a point where you are having faith in God and God is saying no. And he's good. He said, Paul, I'm going to leave you with it. Instead of removing it, not because you didn't have enough faith, but because this is my sovereign design, I'm going to give you grace instead. Enabling grace, persevering grace. And so he lived with a limp to some degree, whatever it was. Some of you, that's you. You're there. There's something in your life that you've begged God to remove. And you get confused from time to time by well-meaning friends and books that if you just had enough, and if you just, if you just, and it's your fault. And I think it's I think it's cruel, Christians that have this theology. Now You have a very painful thing in your life and you get to feel guilty for having it because if you had enough faith, that would be gone. Johnny Erickson Tata, does she lack faith? Has she spent all these years in a wheelchair because she's so faithless? Absolutely not, you guys. God chose to say no to healing her and has God used her for his glory? 
oh my goodness, an entire ministry has been launched that's worldwide to, to people with disabilities and free wheelchairs. And has it been painful for her? Oh, yes. Read, I've read many of her books. You know, bed sores and all kinds of issues you run into as you age as a paraplegic. This has not been easy. She talks about every day needing to rally God's word in her mind to even do another day and, 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 and go and not feel sorry for herself. Oh, it hadn't been easy. But God's used her and given her grace. Joseph, in Genesis 50, verse 20, his brothers, did God make them sin against him? It was weak. No. They were wicked brothers. They were jealous. And it was wrong. And yet their sin that they're accountable for, God used sovereignly to get Joseph where he needed to be in Egypt, first in prison, no fun, and then at the right time, risen to number two in power. Oh, look at the big plan. To save the nation through which the Messiah was going to be sent and all these prophecies were going to be fulfilled. But that nation was going to starve because there was a famine. But God had a Joseph in Egypt who was a land that had food. And they come there and they prosper. And here's the problem with the story of Joseph. You get to see what God was doing. And you have that aha moment. Oh, well, that makes sense. Listen to me. My heart goes out to you. Some of you are going to have to live this whole life and there'll never be that moment you're raised to number two in power where it makes sense. Oh, I see how all this... But please know, no less than what was going on with Joseph is going on with you. It makes sense. God has a plan. It's not random. There's a purpose. But we're called to trust him. And sometimes we don't see how, how in the world could this be good until we get in that other world. I'm convinced, folks... There won't be any time spent in heaven saying, oh my goodness, God, this is horrible. We are going to say, oh my goodness, I get it. I get it. I never would have seen this, right? If God is the most loving, most good, most wise, most beautiful, then his plan is going to blow your mind. You're going to say, oh my goodness, I could have never thought how this was. We just don't always get all the details to, to, to say, okay, okay, I'm good to go. That's why he talks about trusting him. Trusting him. Joseph looked at his brothers after their father died, and they were on their faces saying, ooh, I think he's just been nice until daddy died because they didn't want a bad scene with dad. Dad's old, and now he's going to let us have it. And he looked at them and said, you guys, as for, now notice, he doesn't let him off the hook. Oh, don't worry about it. God and his sovereignty made you do that, so I would be here to feed the whole nation. Get up. It's okay. Wasn't your fault. No. You see what he says? As for you, you meant it for evil. But God. Two of my favorite words in the whole Bible. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. How did Joseph do it? You'll find all through the story of Joseph, Genesis, Genesis 37 to 50. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Whether you feel it or not, my friend, if you're a believer, he's with you. You're not alone in the trial. He's with you. Another great little booklet is How to Handle Trouble by Jay Adams. It's like 75 pages. And one of his key phrases he uses over and over is you've got to see God in the trial. See God in the trial. 
Believe he's in the trial. He's not outside of the trial. He's in it with you and has a plan. That's one of our biggest problems. We believe somehow he's way out there. He's in a different zip code. No, no, no. See God in the trial. My favorite Johnny Erickson Tata book, she's probably got 15 or so, is this one right here, When God Weeps. She is one of the most theological sufferers that I know. She has an amazing theology. She is not superficial. She is a sound theologian. Great writer and great theology. That's my favorite book on suffering by her. C.H. Spurgeon. Oh my goodness, there's a man that suffered with gout in a day. If you've had any, any brush with gout today, you'd still know. It'll bring tears to your eyes, just put you in bed. He had it back when they really didn't understand what was going on. And it would just cripple him. He would just cry out in so much pain. It's like needles being stabbed into your joints. He knew something about suffering and depression and and criticism and being attacked by people. And this is a collection of, of some of the best points in his sermons where he gets off on trials. And it's just a collection of his comments about trials and suffering from Genesis to Revelation. It's gold. It's so good. I give it out all the time to people. All right, what are some of the biblical responses? There's some of what God may be doing. Purposes. Well, what about some of the biblical responses from us as God's children? How should we respond? Number one, you must be responsible no matter how you feel. Don't go with your feelings. Don't listen to your feelings. Feelings can be great liars. You're going to have to have a theology that talks back to your feelings. Oh, on many days, your feelings would lead you to believe this is not fair. God is not good. This is not right. You're going to have to have a theology that enables you to talk back to your feelings. So, and it's a choice to trust God. I've memorized a number of trusting God verses at the most painful points in my life that had to do largely with our older two children going way off the reservation and a health issue where I thought I was going deaf and going to lose all hearing that just terrified me. I'm a preacher that kind of limits your vocation. Usually there's not much else we can do. And it was terrifying. And I memorized some verses. These were some of them. Because notice, it's a choice. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I'll praise his word. Listen to this. In God, I have, say it, put my trust. It's a choice. Put it there. You better be intentional. Your feelings won't lead you there. Psalm 71, in you, O Lord, I have put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Don't just pray to hang in there, you guys. Don't just pray to hang in there. Ask God to help you grow. I cried out to God and I said, God, it was a great day when I actually gave God my hearing. I said, God, don't take this trial away until you've accomplished everything you mean to accomplish in me. And, and this was terrifying, I kid you not, but it was freeing. I said, God, if you think you could use me more greatly, deaf, than as a hearing person, I will let you make that choice. Now, after eight years, he turned that around. But that was a freeing moment where I had to believe my God loves me. He'll take care of me and my family. There's something else he'll do with me. But it is scary. But I had to believe. I don't want to just get through this. I want to grow. I want to grow. That's why James could say, consider it all joy when... You fall into various trials, not because you love the trials, but because of what they produce. Knowing, knowing that it produces patience. It tests your faith and gives you endurance. 
Very convicting comment that I read in a biography. I love to read. I love to read biographies. And some African Christians in a book said this. You Americans always pray for God to remove the trial. We pray for God to strengthen our backs to bear it for his glory. And I started praying that. I wrote that down in my prayer journal. I said, God, don't just remove every trial from me. I don't want to be a sapling. I want to be an oak of righteousness. Strengthen my back to bear it for your glory. What are some reasons why God allows trials and suffering? Unconfessed sins. Just don't make the mistake of assuming if that person's suffering, there's something they haven't confessed. That's what Job's friends did. Terrible counselors. They were fantastic for seven days when they didn't speak. When they started talking, it was horrible. Because they had this theology, if you're suffering, then there's some secret sin in your life. But the Bible does teach, could you suffer from unconfessed sin? Yes. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about it. To chastise his children. God says in Hebrews chapter 12, he uses difficulties to discipline us. Not because he hates us, he loves us. But hard things. To increase our usefulness. Actually, what we think is trials tear us down and I can't serve God as well. The opposite is the case. Trials may give you limitations and a limp, but you're able to serve him more greatly because you depend on him more and you're more like Christ. To help us realize that this isn't heaven and we live in a fallen world. Folks, when times are good, we have a tendency to settle in and just build up as if we're going to stay here. When it gets hard, you tend to release more the things of this world and live more loose. You start living the way you should have been living all along. He can use trials that way. To allow us to reap what we sow. There are instances where you're going through something as the result of what you've done. God didn't promise to give every alcoholic a new liver. So you come to Christ. He sets you free. You have a new heart, new desire. You don't get a new liver. God could do that if he wants to. But in most cases I know. I know of people who did drug use with needles when they were a teenager. And now they're in their 40s and 50s. And they have hepatitis C. It's not like none of the things they did have affected them. It has affected them. So sometimes it is a sowing and reaping principle. To teach us about our own weakness and cause us to depend on God. When you're weak... You depend on him more. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. To have us realize that we've placed our hope somewhere else. Many times you don't know that you've placed your hope in something other than God until that something is taken or shaken. You can say, oh, I don't worship my kids. Oh, I don't live for my kids. That's easy to say when they're all doing well. When one or two or more are doing terrible and you can't sleep and you can't laugh, and you have no joy, and you don't want to serve at VBS, uh uh-oh, maybe I did live for my kids, because right now I'm struggling to live. To help us realize we've placed our hope somewhere else. To enlarge our appreciation of his sufficiency, it's not until you are really weak that you find out how strong he is and how he meets you in weakness. You begin to experience some of what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 12, but it's only in your weakness that you get to experience that. To test and strengthen our faith, Peter says. You find out God doesn't need to know. He already knows, but it helps us know where we really are. To test and strengthen our faith. To develop Christ-like character. Less of us, more of him. Often is when you're on the anvil, when you're in the furnace under heat, does that stuff get burned off. 
to drive us to God's word. Oh my goodness, that summer that I thought I was losing my mind and my hearing, and as I got online and they gave me a diagnosis, and I googled that diagnosis, and everybody online was saying, I no longer speak, I don't talk, I don't want to be around people. That's what I wanted to do also. I was terrifying. I was like, oh my goodness. I memorized 67 new verses that summer because I was in a fight to move forward and not be paralyzed with fear. I still needed to come here and preach even though I didn't feel like it. I still needed to counsel people. There were nights that I wanted to say, you call that a problem? Come back when you got a real problem. I got problems. I got my daughter doing I don't know what. I got the court. I got police. And I think I'm going deaf. That ain't nothing. But I couldn't do that. I had to smile and give hope. How do you do that? I cried out for God's help. And I memorized God's word. You think about how the psalmist talks about what he learned in suffering. And he calls it good. When I was afflicted, it was good that I was afflicted. So what are some of the resources we have? We know that his will is good and perfect and acceptable. He has a good plan. Christ prays on our behalf. Ooh, that encouraged me. I knew my mother felt bad for me and had her friends praying, but Jesus intercedes for me day and night. My Savior is interceding for me. For when I was awake during the night, I knew I'm not alone. He's up. He's up. Right now, he's interceding for me. His Holy Spirit indwells us. I've got the Spirit of Christ living in me. His grace is sufficient. Heaven is our home. This is not our home. It makes you sense just more, oh man, I am so not home yet. And Christ is soon to return. 